Welcome back to episode 11 of In Light of the Gospel. I am Dan Blatz. Today I'll be doing something a little bit different. I'm going to actually be sharing a bit of my testimony. This is actually a recording that I made some time ago, a few months back, for another group, another YouTube channel. So some of you may have seen this already or heard it, but I think it'll be fresh to most of you. What I do on it is the first 10 or 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, I share my personal story, a little bit of my own testimony, and then I get a little bit preachy about uh, Hebrews 9 and 10, but it's kind of the basis of my theology, the core uh, driver behind what I do. The reason I wanted to start in light of the gospel, the reason why I want to have conversations with people, the reason why I want people to understand and know the gospel is primarily because this truth that I really, really love in Hebrews 9 and 10. But you will get a bit of my personal story, so it won't be totally out of the ordinary from the rest of the episodes. So I appreciate you following along, and I got another recording coming up in the next couple days. I'll probably be posting it next week sometime. We'll see when it comes live, but uh, I think you'll really enjoy that one as well. In the meantime, I appreciate if you'd subscribe to the channel, share it with somebody who could be blessed by it, and I appreciate you again for tagging along. God bless. My name, again, is Dan Blatz. I come from a family of... Uh, Typical Mennonite old colony upbringing. I was one of six, seven, sorry, one of seven brothers. I have no sisters and uh, was raised in a very standard old colony home. But I was born and raised in Canada. And so I might be a little different than some of you that way because I never did grow up in Mexico. I was here the whole time. I went to public school. I learned um, the, the things that a typical Canadian would learn. And then um, my parents would always speak German and I would speak English to them, so I never really had to speak low German. I can get by and have a conversation, but it's not really a specialty of mine, that's for sure. I'd love to brush up on it sometime, but uh, anyway, uh, raised Mennonite, and I was raised for a Canadian Mennonite. I was raised pretty staunch. I mean, like I was dedicated to it. I, uh, I would have been considered one of the good kids in a sense where some of my brothers got into trouble, they got into alcohol, they got into partying and, and different things like that. And I was, I really prided myself on not making trouble for my family, for my parents. So I never did drugs. I never uh, got drunk. I never smoked a cigarette. I never even saw drugs. And so I was a good kid. I uh, went through my teen years this way. I had several friends. There was a group of us that we, you know, the five guys that used to hang out all the time. And we all tried to stay clear of these troubling things and did a pretty good job. Sometimes when people wanted to get out of the party scene, they would come and hang out with us. And so if anybody was going to be okay, it was me. Well, by the time I turned 19, I had already met my wife then at that point. And um, when I turned 19, like a lot of Mennonite boys, I got to start keeping my money. And uh, immediately 10% of all of my paycheck went to the church. And uh, I tithed, I prayed, I prayed three, four, five prayers. You guys would probably remember a lot of them. You know, Unser Falter and Los Mich Diese and um, what's the other one that I really enjoy? Christi Blut in Gerechtigkeit. You know, it was a really good prayer. And uh, so I did this every night and I would read my Bible. I read those uh, blue Bible story books. There's one through ten. I read through those, you know, over and over and over again. And uh, as I grew older, I began to read my Bible. I would always make sure I read a chapter a day at least. And um, my wife and I would read the same chapter at times. And when we went to baptism classes at the old colony, we wanted to be very clear that we were not doing this just to get married. We saw so many people doing that and we were disgusted by it. So we decided to go through it legitimately. 
and uh, we were going to actually change. And we decided we were going to stop, you know, messing around with each other. We were going to stop uh, whatever other sins we thought we had at the time. But for us, primarily, we were feeling guilt about not being able to stay pure with one another. We justified ourselves by not going all the way, if you know what I mean, but uh, continued to fall into lust and sin over and over and over again. So when we got baptized, we were like, let's seriously make a change. Just before a lot of this happened, several of my friends, these good guys, um, started getting saved. They started hearing the gospel. One day I was coming out of the gym. We were working out, me and a few friends. And uh, a friend of mine had recently, in the previous year, lost a brother and a mom. His brother was in a, in a car accident, a motorbike accident. He was a criminal. He was taking off from the police. His mom died a few days later from a heartbreak. Uh, you might know the family. Uh, it was a terrible situation. And so a year goes by, and he was very open to the gospel. We were met by some street preachers coming out of the gym, and they were trying to preach the gospel to us. Whether their approach was correct or not is besides the point. I know my heart was hard and cold and uh, very against anything that they had to say. I, I just argued to their face. I, I was pretty quick with words, as I am now, and I tried to just corner them and back them down and try to talk them off of their understanding. I didn't succeed, but I felt like I had won some arguments. And I walked away from that. It didn't phase me a bit. I had no had no effect on me. But little did I know that this friend of mine was very convicted of his sin, had been pondering and considering eternity, had been wondering what would happen to his soul if he were to die. These things never crossed my mind. I, obviously, I'm, I'm Christian. I mean, I'm Mennonite. I'm good. Um, I never considered it. Um, to give you another understanding of where my mentality was, in grade 9 high school, there was a Christian that I was going to school with. I took a class with him, and he asked me one day, he says, uh, So Dan, are you a Christian? And I said, Well, I try to be. And he, and he says, What do you mean you try to be? I said, I, I do my best. And he says, But you believe or you don't believe. You're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Which is it? And I said, well, I try. Uh, my parents had taught me that if you were to say, I am a Christian, that was clearly you being proud. And I didn't want to come across as proud. I didn't want to be arrogant. I didn't want to be conceited. And so I just tried my best to be a Christian. And if someone else called me a Christian, that was great. But I wasn't going to call myself a Christian because that would be proud. And so we went through baptism classes and through the baptism like this, trying desperately to stop sin, not succeeding whatsoever. But feeling like we were okay because at least we were going through the right steps. We were in the right church. We were doing the right things. And so we got married and uh, had a great time, had a great marriage. It was a lot of fun. The first year was a blast. Everything was going well. And um, then uh, we had our first child. About a year into our marriage, we got uh, had our first baby. And I began to feel the weight and responsibility of knowing that this child is dependent upon me to know God. And I myself did not know God. And so it was a, a very heavy weight on my shoulders. At this same time, there was an old colony split. Some of you that are familiar with the Elmer area, you probably remember this. It was like 17, 18 years ago now. And uh, we followed along with a Mr. Redekop who wanted to preach in English to some degree. He was not uh, necessarily preaching a lot of gospel, but he understood a little bit more about the scriptures and he wanted to break free from some tradition and just um, preach in English so that people can understand. And we were all for that. Me and my almost my entire family left the church at that time. I had one brother who had left previously, but uh, we walked away from the old colony and it started to open up my mind. 
Uh, I had never really considered anything before. Now I had the weight and responsibility of my daughter. I had the weight and the burden of marriage coming under, you know, attack and it being difficult. And then also now this whole paradigm shift. Now I didn't know how to think about God. I didn't know who he was or how to teach my daughter who he is if I myself didn't understand. And so it took me down quite a road. We started listening to cassettes and audios on CD. I was working a job at the time with a Christian who was starting to understand some of this stuff quite a bit himself. He was in the same group and we would pop in these CDs and I would just listen all day trying to figure out what's going on here. And I listened one day and there was a man preaching about the sacrifice of Christ, and he he pictured the scene. It says in the book of Isaiah that he was marred more than any man, and it says that they pulled out his beard, and uh, it said that I can tell all my bones. He could count his bones. He was so torn to shreds, and so I started picturing him that way, and then this preacher said, that should have been you. That should have been you. The punishment that Jesus received should have been you. You know, I was good on the outside. I didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't steal, didn't lie. But inside, behind closed doors, you know, I was sneaking into stores and looking at the magazines, the the pornography. And uh, as soon as I got a computer, that was the temptation. And it was, this was before the days of cell phones. I can't imagine the trouble I would have been in had I been, uh, had the internet accessible to me like that. So uh, I was feeling really awful, feeling very sinful deep inside. And I realized that though I had washed the outside man and had cleaned him up and had presented himself myself as a good person, I knew better than anybody that my heart was evil. And it was starting to come out. You know, it was starting to come into our marriage, into our marriage bed. There was issues there. And um, it was heartbreaking. At the same time, I didn't know what to do. So when I saw that Jesus was beaten and the preacher said that he must have looked more like hamburger meat by the time he was done being being beaten and whipped and crucified, and I realized that that was my place. The next preacher I listened to that same day, he said that, you know, it was because of you. It was your sin that held him there. When Jesus was being beaten and whipped and tortured, he went through it willingly. Why? Because he loves you, because he loved me. And he was taking my sin upon himself, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that he was made to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was made to be sin who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So I didn't realize what was happening to me at the moment, but my coworker suddenly realized that something was transforming in my heart and I was recognizing some deep truth and I turned away trying to wipe the tears, you know. I didn't pray a prayer. I didn't ask Jesus into my heart. I didn't confess my sins. I just recognized that the sacrifice was complete. My mind immediately went to my brothers. I thought about two of my brothers in particular that I named right away. I said, what about these two guys? They need to know this. They need to hear it. And so I didn't make the connection till about a month later that I had been born again right there. Suddenly I had the, the Bible opened up to me. Suddenly I could understand scripture. Suddenly I wanted to know God better. And uh, I looked back as I was trying to share my testimony and what had happened to me. I made the connection that right there, sitting in that seat, the moment I understood, the moment I was fully persuaded that what Jesus had done was for me and it was sufficient, I was saved. I was regenerated. I was born again. I was on my way to heaven from that moment. 
Not because I had somehow become miraculously good, not because I had changed my life enough, but because I recognized for once that Jesus had come on purpose, had laid himself down, had suffered the punishment of my sin, and had now been crucified, and had been buried in a grave, and had raised, been raised again to new life. And so I realized that my sins were no longer there. There was nothing I needed to do to rid myself of my sin. It was once for all, and I was free. And uh, from that day forward, I mean, things got a little chaotic. I got kind of religious at one time. Uh, our marriage had a lot of difficulties because of that, because I wanted to go this way now, and I was passionate. The guys I used to call aviashotene and um, fun, uh, you know, fanatics and all that kind of stuff, carrying their Bibles around, talking about Jesus. Overnight, I had become one of them, and I didn't know what had happened to me. My parents were furious. Um, my wife didn't understand. It was a very difficult time, as you can imagine. Um, a, like a year went by, and I joined a group of, of believers who were very passionate and zealous. And I recognized that all that I had done before getting saved was absolutely useless. And so some things came up there, and I, I recognized my need to confess Jesus openly and to uh, announce to the world that I was a Christian. And it really got me in a lot of hot water. I was in a lot of trouble. I was not welcome at my in-laws for two years after that time because of how controversial it was, right? And um, looking back now, it was some of the best times. I grew. I I understood more about who God was. I humbled myself. I recognized how sinful I was and how in need of a savior I was. And at the same time, I got tied up with a church that, uh, though they did preach the gospel, there was so much outward religion mixed in that I got pretty confused rather quickly and maybe even lost some of the joy of my salvation because I was trying hard to be good. And so I was so dedicated to this that I would listen to preachers. One preacher said that if you don't spend at least an hour a day praying, you are a joke of a Christian. And another preacher that I really liked at that time, he said, never read less than three to six chapters of the Old Testament and three to six chapters of the New Testament. You can read more, but never less. And, you know, I heard stories about Christians that are really dedicated. They'll get up at four in the morning, no matter what their day looks like. They'll always be up before sunrise, right? And so I started getting really dedicated to this stuff and would get up at four in the morning and try desperately to read my three to six or 12 chapters, whatever it was, and try, you know, keep watch on the clock, see if I could pray for an hour and, and try to make a list of different people that I needed to pray for so that my prayer would be long and spiritual. And it just got to be overwhelming. There was no joy left. Uh, the, the fact that Jesus had come and taken my place and had made me perfect and righteous and holy in his sight kind of started to slip away. And it became about being religious. And because I was, quote unquote, pretty good at it, it made me feel good for quite a while. Because I could go to church meetings now and have real testimonies of praying and reading and fasting. I fasted and lost 60 pounds. You know, I was, I was serious. But as you can imagine, I started taking pride in my outward abilities. I was a quick, quick at talking. I could share with people. I could uh, read quite well. And so it wasn't difficult for me to understand the Bible and to read it. And uh, I just started progressing in the Christian life, so to speak, or at least in church life, and was recognized as someone who was serious and zealous and dedicated. And it, it 
wasn't until a few years went by that our marriage was uh, often very rocky. I was ignorant and selfish and moody. Uh, not moody. I was pretty pretty happy. But my wife was going through some issues, you know, postpartum depression. We had our second child. And then she finally came across a book on how to be a helper to me and how to submit and honor me. And it was at the same time that I was being rejected by my in-laws and rejected by my parents and screamed at and yelled at. And it, it was chaotic. But my wife started realizing that she had married this man whom she did not understand, but that she was going to love and submit to. And she took the high road in many cases. And so our, our marriage started to mesh a little bit better. There was a lot of rough spots after that. And like any marriage, that's what happens. It, it became sweeter all the time, though, as we learned to walk together in, in unison. And at the same time that she was reading this book on how to be a helpmate, I also was given a, a series of messages dealing with freedom from sin. And realizing that my freedom from sin and from the power of sin, my freedom from pornography, from lust and from anger and from jealousy and greed, does, does not come through my dedication to Christ. You know, it, if I was really dedicated, I would pray hard and fast hard and read a lot. And then I thought, well, now I should walk free from sin, but then I would still slip up and I would still sin and there was still issues going on. And so I thought maybe that if I... You know, once I had sinned, then if I prayed even harder or dedicated myself even further, that maybe then there would be some reprieve. But it was only when I got this series of messages. It was actually by a preacher named Michael Pearl. It was called Sin No More. And he went through Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapters 2 and 3 and Ephesians chapter 2 and all that. And I just was extremely liberated. Like, all of a sudden, I was so overcome with joy and with pleasure and uh, excitement. I realized that I was righteous. I was holy in God's sight. That what Jesus had done didn't just forgive my sins, but it gave me a status with God. It seated me in the heavenly places. That I was no longer subject to ordinances. I wasn't stuck in this body just trying hard to overcome. I was actually empowered by God's Spirit. I had been crucified together with Christ. It was no longer I that lived, but Christ that lived in me. And I was now together with Christ, one with Him, seated in the heavenly places far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and uh, one preacher said at that time uh, two men had been talking and the one guy asked him how are you doing man and he says well under the circumstances I'm doing okay and the, the other man responded and said what are you doing under the circumstances the circumstances in your life do not need to dictate to you how you ought to live because we have been buried with Christ. We were crucified with him. We were buried with him and we have been raised together with him so that right now I am one with Jesus. God is sitting in heaven. Jesus is at his right hand and I am hidden with Christ in God. I'm up there with him. I am seated. I am placed. No can take away my salvation. Nobody can take away my victory. There's nothing in this life, no circumstance in this life that needs to uh, make me submit to sin and temptation and evil. I'm free, 100% free because of what Jesus has done. And we could get into that so much more. Maybe I will as I go through this text here. Uh, the testimony part of the thing took me a little bit longer than I was planning anyway. But uh, let's jump into Hebrews chapter 9. And I really hope you follow along because there's so much in this passage um, that 
is astounding to me. And if people, if Christians recognize the beauty of this passage, they would be a lot more free and a lot more open and they would stop feeling guilty. They would stop feeling ashamed. They would be free in their heart, in their spirit. They would have a celebration in their souls if they were to grasp this. So the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrew Christians, first of all, who had been freed from the Jewish system. They were no longer going to the temple. They were now free. And so they were tempted, though, after many years of persecution and opposition, they were thinking about maybe going back because it was just too much and Jesus wasn't returning. They didn't know what to do. So this book is constantly showing the superiority of Christ. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus has offered a better rest. He's got better promises. There's a better priesthood and a better covenant with better sacrifices and on and on and on it goes. And he's just saying, don't turn back. Don't draw back. There's nothing back in Judaism waiting for you. Jesus is better. So, Starting with that thought, we jump into Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. He's reminding them of their old former way of religion. He says, In almost all things, almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Meaning they were all cleansed with blood. When they would make a sacrifice, or even the priest, when they dedicated the priest, they would sprinkle the, the blood on the priest, and they would sprinkle the blood on a book, and they would sprinkle the blood on the altar. All things were by the law purged with blood. And then he says, and without shedding of blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That's what he says. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So you cannot get forgiveness by asking for it. You cannot get forgiveness by feeling sorry for it. You cannot get forgiveness by pleading and crying and begging God to forgive you. The only way that you can ever get forgiveness is through the shedding of blood. And this is where Jesus comes in, obviously. Under the Old Covenant, they would slay lambs. They'd slit their throat, pour out the blood, offer it to God, and they would get some forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he's reminding them there was a pattern. Moses built the tabernacle on earth based on a pattern that he saw about the real tabernacle that's in heaven. So in heaven, God sits on the throne and in order to approach him, you would need to have blood. And so the Old Testament priest would take his this blood of the animal and bring it into the most holy place once a year and bring that blood before God the Father at the mercy seat. And if it was accepted, he could go back out and announce to the people that your sins have been forgiven for one more year. And so he says, if the earthly tabernacle had that system and it was only a shadow of the heavenly things, then the, the heavenly sacrifices needed to be better and more pure and of more significance and substance than the earthly ones. Correct? I mean, that just makes sense. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands. When he died, that temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, but he didn't go into that tabernacle, into that temple and offer sacrifices. He ascended up into heaven and then deposited his sacrifice, the blood of his sacrifice before God the Father in real time, in real person. He went up there. The, he entered not into the holy place with made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. I'm reading in Hebrews chapters 9, 9, verse 22 through 28. Jesus has now appeared in heaven before God for us, in the presence of God. 
nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood, with the blood of others. So the high priest would go in every year. He'd offer a bunch of sacrifices, lambs. He would take that blood, go in before the, the high, go in before the, uh, the mercy seat and offer that sacrifice. He would strip off his robe. He would go behind that temple veil where no one else was allowed to go as if he was in the actual presence of God. And he would offer this sacrifice every year, year after year after year after year. And it never, it never could actually take away sins. And so it says Jesus didn't go into the earthly tabernacle, but he went into the real heaven. And not just every year. He doesn't need to go every year. For he hath appeared, um, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. He didn't offer some lamb. He didn't offer some bull or goat. He offered himself as it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. So Christ once offered, was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So the priest would stand daily offering sacrifices. And then once a year, he would go into the most holy place. So his job was never complete. He would work and work and work and offer these sacrifices. Let's move on. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. So if you look back to the Old Testament law, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, they describe the Old Testament sacrificial system and they had a shadow of good things to come but not the very image of the things, they can never, with those sacrifices which they offer year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. They could never make the comers thereunto perfect. You know, sometimes when you read a verse like that, you can read as much by the implication of that verse as you do by the actual stated phrase. If those sacrifices could never make the comers thereunto perfect, what about our sacrifice now? Does it make people perfect? It absolutely does. And that's what he's trying to say here. So those offerings, those sacrifices that they made year by year, year by year, could never make the comers thereunto perfect. The, the, I mean, if you were a Jew back in those days, you would bring in the, the your lamb, you would have it killed, you'd have the priest offer the sacrifice, and then next year, guess what? You're back in line again with another lamb because you know that your sin is still there and it still needs to be dealt with. You haven't been made perfect. The sacrifice has not been complete. It wasn't sufficient to do away with sins once for all. For then, if those sacrifices would have been sufficient, it says in verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? He's asking the question. If those sacrifices actually did the job that they were required to do, what they were supposed to be doing, wouldn't they have stopped sacrificing then eventually? He says, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. If they had finally actually gotten rid of their sins, then they wouldn't need to keep coming year after year after year on this treadmill of sin management, right? They're on the treadmill dealing with their sin day after day after day after day. All of their religion, and this is most of Christianity today too, which is false, it's dealing with sin. You go to the preacher every week and he beats you up about your sin. You feel awful for what you've done. You feel bad for how ba uh, miserable you are and how you treated your wife and how you treated your family and what you did at work. And you're just over and over and over again trying to get forgiveness. You know, Catholics will go and offer um, confessions to their priests and Protestants go and offer confessions directly to Jesus. They think that Jesus is slowly by slowly forgiving their sins. This passage is completely defying that idea. 
He says, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Isn't the remembrance of sins made at almost every church service almost every week? Isn't that what most of church is all about is remembering your sins, remembering your sins, remembering your sins? That's what the Old Testament sacrificial treadmill was all about. He says, that's not our new covenant. The new covenant is much different than that. If they could have ever found the perfect sacrifice, then they would have stopped offering sacrifices. They would have stopped being so conscious of their sin. They would have stopped living in defeat to sin, and they would have had victory. He says in verse 4, It is not possible, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And he's starting to get to the good part here, guys. He's starting to really amp up this argument. He said, if they could have ever actually taken away sins, the priest would have stopped offering. But it's not possible. The blood of bulls and goats is not what God requires. God never looked down at that and said, okay, there we go. Now that's a good sacrifice. I'm glad I'm seeing the dead animals because that's really giving me easement. Now I'm going to let people go. No. The blood of bulls and of goats could never, ever take away sins. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and in sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. God never looked down and just said, Oh yeah, I'm so glad they're offering these sacrifices. He's never had pleasure in it. What was the whole idea of it then? He was shadowing something. He was picturing something. He was showing us what he was going to do. He has never had any pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me, verse 7, to do thy will, O God. Verse 8, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and, and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Remember when Jesus was in the garden, he said, ah, Please, Father, take this cup from me. It's too much. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt be done. Jesus was coming to take away the first covenant, the Old Testament, the old covenant that God had made with the Jews, and he was coming to establish a new one, a second one. That's why we call it the New Testament, the second testament that God made with people. The first was made with Jews through the Ten Commandments. The second is made through to all humanity, all who would come, and it was made through Jesus. Jesus did the part of humanity because he was the perfect man. Jesus did the part of humanity in the second covenant, and he brought us to God. He took away the first covenant, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And here's, here's the beauty. I mean, if you've been waiting for something, if you've been waiting for some good news in church, if you've been waiting to get free from your sin and from the guilt of it and the shame of it, here's where it's at. When Jesus came, he, he took on a body like unto yours and mine. He was made under the law. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. And then he gave himself under the old covenant to be crucified and sacrificed as though he were the sinner. And then he was uh, displayed for all the world to see. And he finally, once and for all, took away sins. By the which will, verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once 
for all. There is no more sacrifice for sins. Jesus' body will never be offered again. There is no other offering that can be made. If you as a Christian do commit a sin, which God forbid, I don't want that. If you do, there is nothing you can or should or need to do to get forgiven. There is no sacrifice that needs to be made because there was one offering for sins forever. Jesus Christ offered himself for sins. The body of Jesus Christ was offered for sins. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, it says, But Christ, being come in high priest, Jesus came as a high priest, of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not a physical tabernacle, neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Notice that word having. He has already obtained eternal redemption for us. Your redemption has already been paid by Jesus, by the offering of his body once for all. Now look at back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest, referring back to the Old Testament again, every priest standing daily ministers, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, offering bulls and goats and lambs like they said, can never take away sins. He, he would constantly be offering and offering and offering. Um, but he could never, he could never accomplish it. He never could actually take away sins. But this man, notice in verse 12, but this man, in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament priests, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Notice one thing in the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and in the Old Testament temple. There was no chair. There was a table of showbread. There was an altar of incense. There was a big basin where they would capture blood or where they would, uh, sorry, wash things and, and sanctify things. They had all kinds of instruments and tools and furniture, but there were no chairs. Can you imagine if you were a Jewish young man and you were wrestling with sin and temptation and lust and you needed to get forgiven and you go to the temple to offer your, your lamb. You've raised up this little tiny lamb. It's a month or two months old. It's sweet and it's innocent. It's spotless and it's blameless. And you bring it to the priest knowing that you have been guilty of sin and condemnation and God is angry at the wicked every day and he's angry at you because you know how ugly you are. You walk into the tabernacle and you see the, you know, the priest sitting on a lazy boy with his arms folded and his legs up on, on a stool, you would be horrified. There was no place to sit because this, the dealing with sin was never complete. It was never done. You know, most Christian churches deal with sin this way still today. They never think that it's actually complete. They never believe that it's done. Religion is all about doing and doing and doing. Christianity is saying it's done. It's complete. There's nothing left for you to do. This man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, he ascended up into heaven and he sat down. What is that saying to us? He's saying that the work is complete. There's no more sacrifices that need to be made. There's no more blood that's going to be shed to pay for sins. From now on, it's just good news. It's just a presentation to sinners saying, hey, guess what? There's a sacrifice that has already been made and it's been made on your behalf it's been made as if you were completely 
paid for. Your sins have been bought and paid for by the one sacrifice of Jesus. His blood shed for your sins and for mine. One sacrifice for sins forever. Jesus completed the work. He cried on the cross. It is finished. He ascended into heaven after his resurrection and he sat down. Now it says sometimes that he stands up to intercede. When Stephen was stoned in the book of Acts, he was standing at the right hand of God. But for the most part, he is seated because his work is complete. His work of salvation is completely done. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and he sat down. For by one offering, in verse 14, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Those that are sanctified are those that believe on Jesus. And he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. So let me ask you, are you perfect? Well, most would say, well, no, 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 I'm not perfect. Does God see you as perfect? It, here, Right here in this text, it says that if you are a believer in Jesus, if you have trusted his sacrifice in payment for your sins, it says that he has perfected you forever. There's nothing you need to do. Never at any one point in time in this life do you ever again need to make some kind of connection back to God in order to be free. You don't have to pray long prayers. You don't have to read your Bible. And please don't get me wrong. I am all for praying prayers. I hope there's a lot of prayers listening. And I hope you all read your Bible even more diligently than ever before. But if you are feeling guilt and shame and condemnation for your sin, there is nothing you can do and nothing God is looking from you to do. The only thing you can do is go before God and say, God, here's the perfect sacrifice for my sins. Here's the work that you have done. Thank you for it. Thank you that I am free based on his cross alone and nothing else. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the power of the cross. Paul said near the end of his life, I glory in nothing save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. It is our hope. It is our anchor. It is the only thing that we have confidence in before God, but it gives you absolute confidence. You don't need to wonder. We don't need to tvivel. There's no wondering whether or not I'm good enough. We know we're not good enough, but we know that Jesus was good enough. We know that he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. And if he is accepted and ascended into heaven and accepted by God, then I am too. Not because I've been good. Not because I'm a Mennonite. Not because I stayed away from drinking and smoking and drugs and alcohol. Because Jesus took my sin and he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And he ascended up into heaven and he sat down. Now I can come to God, as one preacher once put it, I approach the throne of God on the ground of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. For many years, I, I imagined that in my mind as I was praying to God. I could now come boldly unto the throne of grace, as the book of Hebrews also says. I think I'll stop there with the text. Go on, read further. Read into Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Those two chapters are just so chock full of it. But what I wanted to get across was this. When I would pray to God, I would picture myself walking into the throne room of God, looking at his throne, seeing him seated there in all his glory. And I look down at my feet and I see the blood of Jesus. And I don't know if that's how it will look, but he paved the way for us to approach the throne by his shed blood. And it was the perfect way. So now we can come to the throne boldly, having confidence and access to the throne of God by faith. 
because of how good he's been to us. We know that we have peace with God, not because we're trying to accomplish it in our hearts and in our minds, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Finally, let's look at Romans chapter 7, chapter 4 rather, Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Listen to this. It says, Paul is describing the idea of being made righteous. He says, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. I mean, everybody can testify of that. Even Mennonites who feel like I've now confessed all my sins, I've gone to communion, I've made everything right, they probably feel pretty good about themselves for a little while. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. Oh, thank God, my iniquities are forgiven. Thank you so much. And then he goes on and he says, and whose sins are covered. Are your sins covered? Yeah, they're all covered. They're all washed away. And then he says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sins. Now that's going a step beyond what Mennonites believe. And it's hard to understand because you feel like, no, I've got to make up for it. I've got to get it forgiven some way. There's something I have to do. But when you realize that Jesus did it all, then you realize the beauty of imputed righteousness, the fact that God counts us as righteous, even though I recognize that I'm not, I've got so far to go. I want to serve him. I want to honor him. I want to worship him. But the Lord does not impute any sins to my account. Nothing. Think about that for a moment. God never looks at your sin and says, oh, I got to put this one back in the book. No, it's all cleansed. It's all covered. There was no sin that you can commit that was not thought of by God. There is no sin that you can commit that, that God didn't think, oh man, I didn't think of that one. I don't think I can forgive that one. All sins, one sacrifice for sins forever. Can you see why we now call it good news? When we tell someone about Jesus, we're not telling them, you better wear this clothes and you better drive this kind of vehicle and you better not go here and you better go there. You better not do this and you better do that. If that was the case, there would be no good news in our message. But if we can go and tell people, your sins are all washed away if you accept what Jesus has done. If you trust and believe in what Jesus has done, your sins are washed away. And not only are they washed away and covered, but God will never again impute, count sins to your account. Your account has been wiped clean. You are free through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ forever. All right, guys, I really appreciate you tuning in and listening and hearing my story. It's uh, it's a real joy. I went from religious, um, dedicated, guilt-ridden sinner to a rejoicing son of God, saint. I am rejoicing in the goodness of God. And whenever a bit of pride creeps in where I think maybe I'm doing okay, I remember that I'm a sinful, wicked, evil man that needed a savior. And whenever I think, oh, I'm just so terrible and hopeless and miserable and I can never do what is right, I remember that I'm loved and cared for and Jesus gave himself for my sins. You are more evil and sinful than you realize but you are also far more loved and appreciated than you could have ever dared imagine. God loves sinners. God has given his own life to redeem us from sin and death and hell. God bless you.